0: I grew up going to the Conroe Church of Christ in Conroe, Texas. That's where you could find my family uh, most Sundays. And it was a precious church. I mean, they were full of very kind and gracious people. But it was the absolute last place in the world I wanted to be on a Sunday morning. I, I can I can still remember very distinctly being like 11 years old. Sunday rolls around. I'm in bed. I want to sleep in. And I hear this voice coming from downstairs the voice of my dad it's time for church let's get ready for church and my heart would sink and i'd have to get up and put on khaki pants and a collared shirt i mean i'm st- still to this day i have an allergic reaction to khaki it's a terrible thing and then we'd go spend an hour in church and then another hour in sunday school and the worst thing of all for me always about once a month the at the end of the service the worship leader would have us all stand up and hold hands as we sang the final song, and I just wanted to die. I mean, I could not have imagined anything worse than that. You know, I, I these memories, I look back and I laugh on it now because, of course, I turned out to be a pastor, something I never would have thought I could become, uh, a pastor of a church as much as I disdained Sunday morning church. But I am grateful now. I'm grateful that my parents dragged me to church. Very, very faithfully we went against my desire to sleep in and be lazy. But you know, it's no surprise that I felt the way I did. I mean, you think about it. It wasn't just that I was 11 and didn't like church. I mean, two big reasons why I, I just, it was it was um, a, a, a fearful thing for me to wake up on Sunday and get dressed for church the first and the most obvious is that even though I believed in God as a young man, I didn't have faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of my life, for the forgiveness of my sins. I didn't really know Christ, and therefore, of course, I had no desire for his church. But then secondly, I didn't understand what church even was, or why it really mattered, or or what my place was in it. And I'll say this now as a pastor, having been in ministry 12 years or so, I think the majority of church attenders, regardless of their age, share some of that mentality that I had as a young man. Um, I mean, if you you take the average church attender and you ask them, why do you go to church? Why are you engaged, connected to a church? Why is it important and what's your role there? often you're going to get a blank stare or maybe at best some kind of generic answer because we don't really know, and for much of my life, even as a Christian later on, I didn't really know why the church mattered or why I mattered to the church. And and see, the tragedy is not just that uh, people don't know the right answer to those questions. The tragedy is that many of us have not grasped just how essential and powerful and wonderful God's church really is. And so what we're going to do, this is something that we're going to return to frequently here at Harvest. I doubt that we'll ever go more than a few months without returning to the topic of the church because it's of such vital importance. And yet most of us, most most Christians, most, most churchgoers view it merely as a good spiritual habit. It's a good thing to do. We live in the Bible Belt. It's the right thing to do. It's what we grew up doing, and we want our kids to do it too. And, and y'all, the church is so much more than that because there are, are many who profess faith in Jesus today, many within our community right now who claim to be Christians and yet view the church as optional. I can, I can love and follow Jesus without being committed to the church. That's a prevailing belief in our culture right now. And of course, there are many others who don't profess faith in Jesus who view the church not as a blessing to society, but as a drain. That we, that we're not neutral in their minds. We're actually harmful. We're a nuisance to Sunday morning traffic. That's all we are. We're a waste of electricity. And so we, 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 what we've got to do with, with some frequency here is we've got to understand the church and what we're going to do just in two short weeks today and then next sunday we're going to look at first the identity and the purpose of the church the big picture who we are and what we're for and then next week we're going to look at membership is membership something that is biblical and if so how do we understand it and practice it specifically here in this church body and so today we look to first peter chapter two We're going to look only at two short verses, but here the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 2, he paints for us one of the most beautiful pictures of the church, our identity, and our purpose in all the Bible, and what we see here in just a very little section of Scripture, we see the church's absolute necessity and our absolute uniqueness. We are unique, and we are necessary in God's universe. The church matters, and Peter's going to show us how. This is 1 Peter 2, just verses 9 and 10 we're going to look at today. Look at verse 9. Peter says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. I'm going to say that again. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for God's own possession. See, when Peter, and and what we're going to do, just real briefly, we're going to walk through each one of those defining characteristics here as to what Peter's trying to to tell us who we are and why it matters. Let's just walk through each one in turn. When Peter calls us first a chosen race, that may, on the surface, appear to be kind of an elitist statement. You know, to say we're a chosen race, that seems uh, potentially divisive. I mean, the word race, of course, in our culture, maybe forevermore, will be a divisive word, or at least potentially it is. But when, when, if we make this into a, an elite class of people, to say chosen race, then we actually miss the message of Christianity altogether. Because here's the truth, that, that word race, or your Bible may uh, translate it as generation, it does mean that we are a totally different branch of humanity now that to be a Christian is to be something fundamentally different. Um, We are a people group, Christians, who actually have nothing to do with race, or ethnicity, or gender, or socioeconomic class, or geographic location. And this is an interesting thing, that, that Christianity is truly the only global religion. That every other religion has basically a center spot in terms of geography, a dominant location um, or a concentration of people, whereas Christianity does not. We are all over the globe, dispersed throughout, uh, because our faith does not depend on a particular spot on the map. We don't all uh, make a pilgrimage to a certain temple or certain holy place every year or even once in a lifetime. We don't do that. We're spread out, and in Revelation we see this beautiful picture of heaven where every tongue and tribe and nation is represented uh, as those who know and follow Christ. We are global in that regard, and we make no distinction now. You're not privileged because of where you're born or what class you're born into or what color your skin is or anything else. So when, when Peter says race, he doesn't mean race as we define it, in our culture, he's talking about a class of people that we were not born into this, but that God grafted us in, he brought us in. Uh, we're a different people group now all together uh, as, to, as something that's happened to us after the fact that has nothing to do with our genes or our DNA. Well, how did God do that? I mean, how, how is it that we are this race, this class in a sense of people Well, that first word before race or generation is key. It's the word chosen. We are who we are because of God's choosing. Christians aren't Christians because we are morally superior to others. Because we, in our wisdom, we grasped something or achieved something that the common person couldn't grasp or achieve. That's absolutely false. And in fact, it's really the opposite. I mean, in terms of what makes us a Christian, you and I, we're here in spite of ourselves, in spite of our sin, our our lack of morality, in spite of our ignorance, in spite of our foolishness. See, for God to choose us means that he has set his love and his grace upon us before we could do anything to deserve it. That he loved us with an incorruptible, eternal love, even when we were his enemies in our rebellion. That's what Romans 5 says. And see, this is one of the reasons Christianity is hard for people to accept. This is one of the things that makes the gospel of Jesus very offensive to many people. Because a lot of people come to religion in the hopes that it will make them superior. Right? If I do these things, if I elevate myself, I will become acceptable to God and I will be above uh, the rest of the population. And religion is, c- can be a power play. It, it's an appeal to people's self-righteousness. Right? Well, Christianity, faith in Jesus, is the, is the opposite of that. To, to be a Christian, is, it's required of us that we say, I am nothing apart from God's awesome mercy. He chose me. I did not choose him. I did not climb up a ladder to get to him. He had to descend to the depths and find me in the darkness. I am inadequate and I am incapable and that's what makes me a Christian is that I have fallen upon the great mercy of a God who loved me in spite of me. You see why that might be hard for people to accept? Total self-abasement and reaching out and receiving a gift that comes from beyond us. And see, what we come to realize in this, this is the most precious truth we can ever know. That we are a chosen race. Who we are is utterly unique and it comes to us completely as a gift of God's choosing. We have nothing to brag about here. He has chosen us and made us uh, new. We are a different community made up of people uh, who did not deserve to be here. So it's, it's great dignity that we're here, but it's also humbling that we're here. We're a chosen race. And then Peter calls us a royal priesthood. And I don't know that you can have a favorite phrase in this little section, but this is my favorite. We're a royal priesthood. This is so fascinating to me. This is rooted in the Old Testament. Royal and priesthood. You've got king and you've got priest combined here into one phrase. Well, In Old Testament Israel, that was not possible. You had 12 tribes in Israel. Two of those tribes were responsible for producing the kings and the priests. The kings would come from the tribe of Judah. Priests came from the tribe of Levi. And one person was not allowed to hold both offices. You could not be both a king and a priest. That wasn't allowed. But then along comes Jesus Christ. Along comes Jesus, who was physically born from the tribe of Judah. So he had a claim to kingship in terms of his physical genealogy. And, of course, he became the king of all the universe. I mean, if you read through Philippians 2, that God, after Christ's resurrection, he exalted him and gave him the name above every name. And he, uh, and he seated him at his right hand. And now all the universe is a footstool for the feet of Jesus He has that great kingly authority now forevermore over over everything. Okay, he is king. But then if you read through the book of Hebrews, among other places, we find out that Jesus is also priest. And not capital P, priest, or rather not lowercase p, like a human priest, an uh, an Israelite priest, but capital P. He's the great high priest. And here's the difference. A, a lowercase p, a human priest in Israel, would mediate sacrifices for people. If I'm a sinner, I come to the priest, I bring my, my animal sacrifice, the priest takes it and, uh, and slaughters it and does the work of, of atonement for me that God would forgive my sins. He mediates that relationship. What did Jesus do? Oh, read through Hebrews. It's just such a wonderful And profound truth. Jesus did not offer up the blood of a goat or a bull or a ram for us. He didn't mediate a sacrifice in human terms. He gave his own life as the sacrifice for our sins. He shed his own perfect blood in our place that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest to us. So Jesus becomes both king and priest. He's the ultimate victor over sin and death and evil And he's the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of the world, king and priest. And so now, what does Peter say here? Because we are in Christ. First, we are royal. We are sons and daughters of the king himself. We are adopted into God's family by the grace of Jesus. But there's also a sense in which we are a priesthood, meaning we have no need for anyone to mediate our relationship with God, we don't need a go-between to get us to God. Do you understand this? Um, you Listen, you don't come to me as a pastor hoping that I can get you special access to God. It doesn't work that way. You don't go to a Catholic priest to confess your sins so that he then can, can be your go-between, be your mediator. You don't need that. Christ has become your high priest, giving you direct access to God, unfettered, no boundaries. We go straight to God through the person of Jesus Christ based on what he has done for you. We're a royal priesthood. It's an amazing truth. There's an old preacher. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think he's passed away. His name, his name was Dick Lucas. He gave an illustration that is to me very, very helpful. He imagines a conversation Way back, this is after the resurrection of Jesus, there's a, in Rome, there's a new Christian uh, having a conversation with his Roman neighbor. His Roman neighbor is a pagan, like most of Rome was. But here's a new Christian. And this is an imaginary conversation, but listen to how this goes. The pagan neighbor says, Ah, I hear you're religious now. That's great. Religion's a good thing. Where's your temple or holy place? We don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple? But where do your priests work and do their rituals? We don't have priests to mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priests? But where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this? sputters the pagan neighbor. And of course the answer is, it's no religion at all. We are a new humanity because of Christ. We are a royal priesthood because of his sacrifice. We are not religious in that sense anymore because Christ has become our all in all. We're a royal priesthood. It's an amazing truth. And then Peter says, lastly, that we are a holy nation a people for God's own possession. And the idea, when when we're called a holy nation here, it's the idea of taking something that is old and worn out and useless, and then you wash it and you you redeem it. You make it, in some sense, even better than new. And then you give it a new purpose, a better purpose than it ever had before. See, that's what God has done for us as the church. God has not just chosen us and given us a new name and given us direct access to his throne. That would be enough. But he's also set us apart and cleansed us, purified us for a greater purpose. He's called us to holiness. And that means, very plainly, that we, the church, now get to reflect God's character. The thing that's happened to us has not just It's not just spiritual in the sense that it's unseen and kind of ethereal. No, it's practical. God has moved within our hearts. We aren't just different in an unseen, private kind of way. We now act like God's children. We are different people as a result of what's been done for us. In Titus chapter 2, Paul tells us why Jesus died on the cross, And in Titus 2, it's very interesting. Paul gives us two reasons for why Jesus died. The first is obvious. It's something that we've heard many times. He says that Jesus gave himself up for us to cleanse us from every lawless deed, which means Jesus died to forgive our sins. We know that. But then Paul gives a second reason. He says, and also, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds that when Jesus lay dying on the cross, shedding his blood for us, fundamental to the purpose of his death was to purify for himself a people, a church, a community for his own possession, just like Peter just said, and zealous for good deeds. We're not just a spiritually redefined people, but it's practical for us. It changes how we live. We now have a zeal for what is good to live for Jesus Christ in this world. Remember, being a Christian is not a claim that we're better than everybody else. We didn't earn our way here through moral activities. No. But it does mean that we are radically different now in how we live. We didn't earn our way here, but now that we're here, now that we've been uh, gifted this grace, it transforms our hearts, and as a result, it transforms the things that we think and choose and say and do. We're different and the church should be an unmistakably holy people to the watching world. They should see something unique and different about us, something that cannot be explained, it cannot go unnoticed, like a bright flash of light into a dark place. That's the church. We are a holy nation. And it helps us to understand You know that when Jesus says things like, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. When he says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What do those things mean? Jesus is defining a new way of life for us. He's telling us that as a community now, we are different. And we cannot be hidden away. We cannot be privatized. This is something that, uh, that is obvious to the world when we live it out. Now that's who you are. That's who I am. That's what we, as a church, have become because of the grace of Jesus. And a very important statement here. This may seem obvious, but it's worth mentioning. That these are not individual, singular statements Peter's making here. These are plural. You know, if you applied your own name to these statements, it wouldn't make grammatical sense to say, Kyle is a chosen race. Kyle is a royal priesthood. Kyle is a a holy nation. It makes no sense because it's not singular. It's plural. What salvation produces, of course, you have a personal Lord and Savior, yes, but what salvation produces is a church, a people, a community. Most traditional cultures grasp this better than we do because most cultures still in the world today are naturally more communal. They're more interdependent. They need each other. Kids don't grow up and move far away from home, typically, in most cultures. They stay close, and they contribute to the family. Um, Well, we don't live in a traditional culture. We live in, in the West. And in the West, in America, typically, we are much more individualistic. And we've never known any other way of life. And so the idea of being a community, an interdependent people, That really runs counter to our culture. It runs counter to what's maybe natural for us. We love the idea of Jesus being my personal Lord and Savior. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. We love that. But see, the scripture over and over again tells me that no Christian is an island unto himself. No Christian is an island unto herself. You cannot fulfill what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, by yourself. It's impossible. It's unnatural. And, and I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to read through the, the entire New Testament and find very much that's geared, at, that's aimed at you individually. I mean, basically, everything that we that we're given as the church is for the church, plural, not singular. And so we've got to, God has got to produce in us a different kind of mindset than maybe what's natural and cultural for us, this is our new identity. We are God's people. We are God's new humanity. And this is an identity that we've received as a gift of grace. We get to lock arms together. This is who we are. Isn't that wonderful? But Peter's also going to tell us that it's not just who we are, it's what we're for. We have a purpose now that guides us, that drives us until Jesus takes us home, and that's the latter half of verse 9 and then verse 10. We know who we are, but why are we here? He says, so that, in the middle of verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, oh, so that, we can't miss this. There's a purpose here so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are here to proclaim the excellencies of God who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We get a very small sense of what this is like. If you've ever been to an event that had a featured speaker, somebody always gets up before the speaker to introduce them, and what do they get up to do? That person stands and proclaims the excellencies of the speaker. Right? Why should you listen to this person? Well, let me tell you why. And they begin to list his or her accomplishments. Here's why this person is worth listening to. And see, the the church now, we become, we take that role in some sense. That we have this awesome and unique privilege as a church to proclaim the excellencies of God. To show forth and speak forth to the world Why should you turn to Jesus Christ? Why should you listen to the gospel of Jesus? Well, look at what he's done for us and look at the brilliance of his truth and his grace. The church gets to be, in some sense, the display case of God's glory to the watching world. That's now our purpose. Who he is, what he's done, we get to proclaim that and show it forth. He's changed us, he's transformed us, he's made us new, he's brought us together. How could human beings produce this? No, this must be the work of a divine creator. He did this, and we get to show the world what it looks like. Now, this this is a special proclamation that we're making here. The, the church's primary objective, we're not here to prove to the world that God exists. Okay? That's a wonderful conversation to have, but that's not the church's primary job. God has proven his own existence in many ways. We're not here to prove that God exists. We're not here, we're certainly not here to try to convince the world that our way of religion is better than the others, our laws are more moral and sound than the rest and they should become like us and do what we do. Now, none of us got here that way, right? We're not here because we're moral and we're not calling the world to be moral like us. We're calling the world to Christ, right? And we're certainly not here to, to, you know, uh, to promise people a better life or to promise people some kind of path to enlightenment or fulfillment. That's, those may be uh, benefits of being a Christian, but that's not, that's not the goal. What are we here to do? We're here to tell a story. I know that may sound very simple, but it's true. We're here to proclaim a story of a God who became a man, a God who loved his his creation enough to enter in and become one of us and then suffer and die for our sake, rise again from the grave in order to call us out of darkness, out of our sin and our ignorance and our death and into his marvelous light. See, the gospel is not good advice. We're not here to tell other people how they ought to live. We're here to tell good news. It's a proclamation of something that has already been done for them. It's good news. And it's marvelous, Peter says. That word marvelous, it's, it's to marvel at something, which means it's something so awe-striking that we can't really even take it in. We, we can't hardly grasp it. It's so wonderful. Uh, like, like going from a pitch black room and then suddenly walking out and staring directly into the sun. It's something you can't even fathom and take in. It's beyond our imagination. It's beyond anything. It's, it's not a story that man has produced. We would have never come up with this. We now get to point people to the marvelous light of Jesus Christ and all that he's done for the world. And this is our chief purpose for life. This is why we're here. We proclaim, we glorify, we point to the excellencies of a gracious God so that those who are still living in darkness, who still live in the place that we were ourselves once upon a time, that they might come into contact with this marvelous light. That they might see him for who he is and receive him by faith. The same way that we did. That's our purpose. We have not been recreated and chosen and made a royal priesthood and separated out as a holy nation for our own benefit merely, but for the benefit of the world. To bring that light and that gospel grace, that truth, that story into the world. That's our job. That's our privilege. That's who we are and that's what we're for. Now here's a good question. How is it that a selfish and lazy and disinterested 11-year-old could one day plant and pastor a church? You know, I can't make any sense of this. I can't understand. I can't, I can't trace the steps and, and figure that out. A, a young man who wanted nothing to do with the church, who only went because he had to, and now it's my greatest joy in the whole wide world, to be a part of this. Now, And for that matter, I'd ask any of us, what are any of us doing here? Can you make sense of this? And, and the fact that you wanna be here, it's unbelievable. It doesn't make sense that we actually want to be in this place. I mean, we're all busy people. Certainly there are other things we could be giving our time and our energy and our money to. There are other causes we could be supporting that would make a difference in the world and make us feel good about ourselves. Surely there are other organizations out there that don't ask us for as much or expect as much as the church does from us. And so why are we here? We're here because God intervened into our lives. And he declared that you, Jack, you are part of a chosen race. That you, Jason, you are you are now part of of a larger body bigger than you more significant only than your individual life you're part of a whole now that God has chosen and brought you in that you Jonathan you're part of a royal priesthood that you Missy you are you're a, you're part of a holy nation and Tom you you are part of a chosen people a people for God's own possession and now we all all of us together we get to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I mean, there's no reason for us to be here unless God stepped in and redirected us and formed us now together into a cohesive whole. We are a church, and there's nothing like it in the world. We planted this church because we believe with all our hearts that these verses are true, And this is worthy of our whole life. This is worthy of our entire existence. This is why God put us on the earth. We planted this church because there are thousands right now in our community, thousands of self-professing Christians who have given up on church, who are disengaged, who view the church as completely optional, maybe even irrelevant. And they have bought into an unfortunate lie that says you can be a good Christian and follow Jesus and have the fulfillment that God offers entirely independent of the church. You can have it by yourself. And we planted this church in the hopes that we would be able to reflect the vitality and the beauty, the uniqueness and the necessity of what these people are missing that we would be able to call people into God's truth and help them to see what the church really is and what we're meant to be now that's not entirely on our shoulders of course it's it's ultimately God's spirit that does this but how how much more wonderful would it be for people who who claim the name of Jesus and yet have given up on the church for them to see churches in their community who are um busting up their assumptions who are changing their minds about what the church is and what we're about so that they can see what it's meant to be. And perhaps they will uh, reorient their hearts and minds around what is true and re-engage what God has called them to. There are thousands in need of that right as I speak. And of course there are many more people in our community right now Uh, who don't view us in a neutral kind of way or a harmless way, they think we're a drain. We're wasting air conditioning and electricity right now. We, We serve no positive purpose. If anything, we get in the way of what is good for our community. And these are precious people. They just don't know Christ. We're called, listen, we planted this church because we're called to proclaim the excellencies of God's marvelous light in the hopes that he will call these people to himself. They're not too far gone. They're not any further gone than we were before we came to Jesus. And my hope, of course, and your hope, our hope is that these these people who maybe once scorned our existence drove by and muttered under their breath about the nuisance of our place in the community that maybe one day they'll actually enter in the doors of worship with us and become proclaimers themselves, that God would grip them by his grace and bring them to himself, and make them a part of us. Wouldn't that be amazing? That's why we're here. Now listen, we can be guilty of coming to church, but not being the church. Now hear me on this, because I can be guilty of this, too. All of us. We can be guilty of coming to church, and not really being the church, We can be committed to the institution, but miss our identity. We can contribute to church programs, and yet miss the church's purpose. And so let's pray this. Let's pray that the Lord would deepen our desire in being who he's created us to be, our identity, and doing what he's called us to do, our purpose. That we would recognize all that we are together, and having um, recognized this great privilege, that we would lock arms and enter into our great responsibility to proclaim him right here in our little corner of the world. Let's pray for that. Father, would you give us the grace we need for this? That, Lord, where we have become perhaps convinced that, uh, that this is just about me and you, God. This is an individual pursuit only. That is such an intoxicating idea because then we're not accountable to anybody. And if I'm not doing so hot spiritually, well, you know, it's just up to me to figure it out and fix it. And and there's a part of me as an individualistic person. I just like that idea. I don't have to answer to anybody else. I don't have to bear anybody else's burdens. Oh, but Lord, that, what, a, what a sad and, and ugly existence that becomes. And show us, Lord, how that's not just wrong. Biblically, it's wrong. But, Lord, it's, it's, it's flimsy. Um, it's empty. Lord, you called us uh, plural. You called us together. And what we are together is vastly superior to what we are individually. That we are a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. Lord, we belong to you. And imperfect and sinful as we are, Lord, when we are together in this context, when we do, uh, when we are who we are, we do what we do, Lord, we become something really remarkable. We become something marvelous. Something that can't be really understood or explained away and it shouldn't be able to go unnoticed. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We are a people purified belonging to him, and now zealous for good deeds. Father, cement that truth in our hearts and do not allow us to go our own directions. But Lord, unify us and call us to this incredible, eternal, significant purpose. We're here for so much more than our own personal pursuit of you. And so, Father, let that personal pursuit be vibrant, let us be responsible for how we walk with you and love and honor you and praise you and live for you. But Lord, let us, let us always see ourselves as part of something greater. So that what, we, what you say we are and what you've called us to do would become a natural thing for us, a joyful thing, that we would never think of our lives outside the context of your church. And I pray in a special way for Harvest Church that we would, we would view ourselves appropriately and that we would take up this mantle. You have called us to amazing things. Lord, um, give us the ability, the equipping, the boldness, the courage, the strength, the grace to live this thing out in a way that really pleases you, that honors you, and, Lord, that makes a bright, shining difference in this little community that we call home. And I pray by it, Lord, beyond it, the world, that from this place, the whole world, in some uh, mysterious way, Lord, we could have an influence, an impact on uh, because of the grace, Lord, that exists right now in this room. We love you. We need you for this, Father. So do this work, we pray, in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.